if you create a society where people's psychological needs are not being met, where their basic needs as human beings are not being fulfilled, they will behave in increasingly erratic and bizarre ways. Radio Mano, Papa Chango. Chris, this is Riley. I'm I'm driving through the wild jungle of Los Angeles, California. We almost got in an accident right now. Hi, wife. I'm this Karen. This guy just cut me off. But thinking of you, positivity, and and sometimes you just gotta do what you gotta do to get in the lane. You know what I'm saying? Thank you for all your podcast. We love it. And we just wanted to say hey. Bye. Hi, Chris. Krista here. It's a few days after my 47th birthday. I'm sitting on my porch in Carlisle, Ontario, Canada. I just want to say I really appreciate the fact that you get to do the best job in the world, or one of them, and we get to listen to it. You've introduced me to a lot of interesting people. And as I sit here listening to your podcast on a beautiful Saturday night, unseasonably warm, nice rainy evening, the dogs in the background. Thank you. Om Swastiastu. That's a little phrase I learned from uh, my buddy Simon Rex. It's Balinese, and it has something to do with a greeting, uh, honoring a person. It's uh, a phrase that I've used on the street a few times, and it always makes people smile and laugh doesn't take much to make people laugh and smile in Bali. I found whatever beautiful things you've heard about this place, they're true, apparently. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, as most of you know, over the years. Never been to Bali before. The only part of Indonesia I visited was Sumatra, and that was back in the late 80s, probably. Uh and I enjoyed it, but it was rough. It was a little harsh, poor, very remote. I was in a place called Bukatingi and then Lake Toba. Uh, traveled around the sort of interior northern half of Sumatra. Bali is fantastic. There are temples everywhere. The people seem to be just incredibly kind and happy and chill and like even the way they honk their horns uh, when you're driving, everyone's on little scooters and taxis and everything. But the way they honk their horns is like beep beep. Hey, I'm here. I'm coming up on the left. Beep beep. There's no none of this sort of um, harsh. Uh, how do, what do we do in the states? It's like you honk as a as a humiliation, as a like a. a a penalty or a way of scolding someone, you know, for cutting in front of you. Fuck you, asshole. Here, it's just beep, beep, coming up. Hey, have a good day. Anyway, Bali, it's fantastic. Uh, I about, within about 48 hours, I started thinking about extending my stay here and uh, I think I'm going to part of the reason is this government shutdown that's how I started thinking about it the government shutdown it's making a mess of the airports 
uh, do I really want to deal with that? What if I got stranded here? And then it's like, well, maybe I shouldn't arrange to be stranded here. And then we started meeting people. Uh, the plan was for me to check out Bali as a possible place for Cassie to do some healing work. And, um, and then if it checked out, she and I would come back at some later date but it's checked out really quickly, and we've met some people who own some clinics, uh, myself and Simon and, and my friend Sam that we're traveling with, uh, some other folks, um, Anya and, and uh, various people that we're, we're just sort of cruising around, and we all have our own contacts. And uh, so we ended up meeting with Russell Simmons the other day, uh, media mogul. That was interesting. Uh, he's apparently setting up a healing center here, and he wanted to talk about Casilda. But uh, we it was great. We talked to him a copy of Sex at Dawn. Interesting conversation, which I probably shouldn't go into in too much detail here. But that was interesting. And I uh, met some other people who own clinics here and are setting things up. And everybody wants to meet Casilda. So I think Casilda is just going to fly directly here and uh, will strike while the iron's hot. So if you're going to be in Bali in the next month or two, uh, drop me a line. Looks like I'll be around. What else can I tell you? This episode is with Johan Hari. What else can I tell you? That's the important thing. Johan Hari. Johan is a fantastic dude. I had him on the podcast a couple, maybe six months ago, maybe a year now. Not sure. Uh, just you can search the archives on my webpage, tangentiallyspeaking.com, and uh, you'll see that episode. I'll post a link to it as well. So if you just go to this episode on tangentiallyspeaking.com, you'll see a link to the earlier episode. Anyway, Johan is an author, a very, very smart guy, lots of fun to hang out with. In the previous podcast, we talked about his most recent book, um, Lost Connections, which is about how the sort of contemporary epidemic of depression and anxiety and suicide uh, is in a large part due to the absence of community, the loss of community in our fragmented Western world. You don't really see that happening in a place like Bali, where community is still very important. Ritual is very important. Sense of belonging is deeply embedded in the culture. Um, in this episode, we talk more about Chasing the Scream, which is his previous book um, that's about addiction. And pretty much the same thesis, that uh, addiction comes from a deep sense of discontent, uh, a feeling of not being connected to a greater whole of uh, loss of meaning in our lives. And so the themes are similar. Similar to my work, actually, where, you know, Civilized to Death and Sex at Dawn are kind of looking at some of the same issues from two different perspectives. Um, in any case, Johan's become a friend, and uh, I'm really happy to bring you another conversation with him. He's one of the smartest, most amusing people I've ever met. And uh, it's thanks to you that I even met him, right? Because I've got this audience that he wanted to connect with, and that's how he made time. And one thing led to another, and, and now he's... Uh, He's a friend. So thank you for that. 
Uh, I also, I, I keep thinking that I want to tell you about other things that I've listened to, but by the time I get to recording the podcast, I forget about it. But this time I made a note. I'm getting real professional with this now after 370 episodes. Uh, I wanted to tell you about an episode, a conversation that took place between my good buddy Kyle Tierman and uh, Matt Taibbi, who flew out for the Motherfucker Awards. Matt Taibbi is a journalist at Rolling Stone. I think he's a senior editor there. He's been writing for them for a long time. And uh, he's also an author of, uh, I don't know, five, six books. He's a fantastic writer. Really funny. He's sort of, a lot of people compare him to Hunter S. Thompson. His work on politics has that same sort of irreverence. And uh, he's a bit of a bad boy as a writer. Um, he doesn't give a fuck. And he writes the way a lot of us speak and he's just fun to read and he's um he's a very special guy he's he's got brass balls as they say and um Kyle had a really good conversation with him initially Kyle and I were going to do the podcast together and co-release it um but um Kyle had done a lot of research and really um wanted to have this conversation with Matt on his own and I'm glad he did because I would have just sort of gotten in the way. I'll I'll hook up with Matt at some point in the future. Um, but Kyle really uh, did a great job with this, and they had a very meaningful and uh, insightful conversation. So I'd encourage you to check that out, the Kyle Tierman Show, specifically the episode with Matt Taibbi. And what else? Let me look at my notes here. I wanted to mention a guy... That I've been corresponding with for a few years now. His name's uh, Micah Hatcher, and he runs um, a guiding uh, backcountry guiding service out of Moab, Utah. And I've been following him, following him on Instagram, and we've exchanged emails. He invited me uh, to join him on a couple of backcountry hikes, and I was going to try to do it, but then I don't remember the weather interfered or something happened, and. Uh, as of the moment, I haven't been able to take him up on it. But over the, the months and years that we've been corresponding, uh, it's become clear that he's a really cool guy. I've never met him in, in person. Um, but I wanted to tell you about him because if you are going to Moab, thinking about a trip down there maybe this spring, and this is uh, an unpaid endorsement, um, but... I think uh, he would be an excellent guy to check out. His website is hikemoabtours.com. So check him out. And, uh, yeah, if you end up doing a – if you get in touch with him, let him know you heard about it on the podcast. That would make me happy. All right. Without further ado, I am going to get right into this conversation with Johan. I'll be recording some more podcasts, obviously, here from Bali. The first few days have been pretty hectic. I've been moving around a lot. Um, but I hope to find a long-term spot, some bungalow or something. I'm in Ubud, which is the sort of cultural capital of um, of Bali. I spent the first couple of nights down in Canggu, uh, or Changu, I think it's pronounced Changu, and um, with some friends of Simon's, and, uh, and we're going to go down to 
Mm, Now I forget the name. I'm not good with these uh, foreign words, but we're going to go down uh, back to Chenggu and then we're going to I'm going to report record a podcast tomorrow with a guy who's uh, an expert on Balinese art. So I'm really looking forward to that. Bruce Carpenter is his name. Old friend is Stanley Krippner's. Stanley put me in touch with Bruce. So looking forward to that. So that's coming soon. I'll do some Romas, just talk about the trip, talk about the place. And uh, that's all. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting this podcast, however you do it, whether it's through Patreon or uh, donation. There's a link to a donation, PayPal donation thing you can do on my page. It can be monthly. It can be a one-time thing, whatever you like. So just go to tangentiallyspeaking.com and you'll see a whole bunch of different options there, as well as that Amazon link. Uh, which kicks a few bucks back. A percentage of whatever you spend kicks it back. This way, Amazon does not in any way support this podcast, but um, if you use that link, um, it supports my drug habits. So there you go. Thank you for listening. I'm going to play you out with a tune called Minor Swing Calling to Django. Uh, Django Reinhardt, of course, was the great French-Spanish gypsy Roma guitarist who developed a unique style of playing guitar after he lost a finger when his caravan caught on fire. So one of those great examples of uh, a disaster and a setback being turned into a great advantage. If he had never lost that finger, we probably would have no idea who Django Reinhardt was at this point. Anyway, this is by Children of the Revolution, and you'll hear that sort of Django Reinhardt classic, uh, easily, immediately recognizable guitar style. All right, thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, I'll catch you next time.
is not there's something terribly lacking in this man's life mm. you know he'd had this terrible childhood i always remember this line his mother said his mother was this exceptionally cold and cruel person but i always remember a line she said i think he got his wit from her so she she got married twice and she was asked if she'd get married a third time she said my first husband had two balls my second husband had one ball i know not to push my luck <laughs> Always remembered that. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Gorvi Dahl. I met him at a fundraiser in Santa Monica. Oh, really? For um, Dennis Kucinich. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It was toward the end of his life. He was, I remember he was wearing leather gloves. Right. He was sitting in a wheelchair with a blanket over him and he had leather gloves. Hmm. Yeah. That was an interesting, interesting event. I also met uh, Dexter, uh, what was his name? Uh, Haskell Wexler. Hmm. He's a cinematographer. Sure, sure. Do you ever see the film he did, um, Medium Cool? I think so. Crazy movie. I don't want to take up our time talking about movies, but uh, it was... Medium Cool? Yeah, it's a very interesting film because it's about how media shapes reality. Hmm. And it's probably... uh, Oh, no, I can tell you exactly. It was filmed in 1968. He was a cameraman at a local news station in Chicago. And everyone knew 1968, the Democratic Convention was going to be a shitstorm, right? The hippies sure. were coming. The mayor said he was going to put the police on them. The National Guard, I think, was there. It was a, a major, you know, storm that was building. And this guy, Haskell Wexler, came up with an idea to film a story, a narrative with actors in the real riots that he oh, knew were going to happen. Yeah. So he wrote the narrative, wow. got the actors, set up the shots. And then they filmed it. And so in the wow. film, you're seeing the real riots happen and the actor runs through and the people are chanting and wow. screaming. Yeah, it's a very interesting film. That's totally fascinating. People who want to watch a film about media construction, I really recommend. I mean, I'm biased about this for various <clears throat> reasons, but a man, you've seen Manufacturing Consent, the documentary yeah, no, about Chomsky. Chomsky. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm writing a biography of Chomsky. I've really? I've been, been working on it the last four oh, years. Yeah, interesting. I've done hundreds of interviews now. and it's. Um, but Manufacturing Consent is a really remarkable, I think it's a life-changing film. It's the kind of film you want every 16-year-old to watch because right. it will change for the rest of their life how they process the news, how they think yeah. about the news. And it's yeah. really desperately, desperately needed. So yeah, I think that's a really great one to watch. But I'll check that because I've been reading a lot about 1968 because of course Chomsky played such an important role in the resistance to the Vietnam War he actually nearly went to prison 
And um, I'm really fascinated by that. He was actually in a, funny enough, slightly related to Vidal. He was in a, um, the night of the March on the Pentagon, Chomsky was imprisoned uh, with, he was in a prison cell with Norman Mailer and the guy who won the Nobel Prize for physics the next year. It must have been the most highbrow prison cell <laughs> in human history, right? Yeah, uptown. Exactly. Uh, I, I once, I assigned Norm, uh, Noam Chomsky in a class I was teaching years ago and a student turned in a five-page paper in which throughout the paper he referred to him as Norm Kromsky. <laughs> Funny enough, one of the reasons why he was not... Um, so there was a trial of um, uh, six people who were um, resisting paying taxes during the Vietnam War mm. and, and calling... Um, and calling on, they issued a, a call for people to resist the draft, which was illegal. It was part of an organization called Resist. And Chomsky was initially going to be charged, but it, it looks like the reason that he wasn't is because they couldn't tell Jewish names apart. So they ended up charging another Jewish guy who was on the list, who had a kind of, you know, Jew, very Jewish sounding name. And then they realized, oh, we can't have too many Jews because it will reveal that we're anti-Semitic. So uh, Chomsky kind of, died, although of course everyone was acquitted at that trial anyway, but... Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the trial of Noam Chomsky was averted by a weird mixture of the anti-Semitic inability to read Jewish names and then the desire to not look too anti-Semitic. So, so yeah, it was Bernie funny. Weinstein, Weinstein took the fall for him. <laughs> exactly, poor, exactly. Poor Bernie. Uh, okay, so we're here. I, we have limited time because you need to rush off to... Can we say where you're rushing off to or is that... <laughs> I'm rushing off to see Mike Tyson. Mike yeah. Tyson. Yeah, I sometimes yeah. wonder if... You know, there's a British TV series called Life on Mars where uh, uh, a guy is in a coma and he starts to, and the whole series is his hallucination, imagining he's in this weird world. And I sometimes wonder if I'm in a coma because increasingly random things happen to me. So yeah, the other day I got asked if I want to go meet Mike Tyson for his podcast. I was like, sure. So yeah, I, yeah. I, maybe this is the effect of the coma. Can you know, you? I I, ha I do feel like we are, <clears throat> I mean, I've, I've talked about this before. Like if there if there's some undiscovered uh, energy field in the universe that affects um probability it feels like the earth has drifted into a, a different probability field in the last yeah. few years yeah. where things that would be like that'll never happen they're happening more and more yeah, often yeah, yeah. whether it's like bizarre sports events i mean you probably don't follow american football but mm -hmm. like a year or two ago a team came back from like 50 points down which has never happened in the history mm -hmm. of the super bowl mm -hmm. and you know just completely and Donald Trump getting elected and like every day is like what that can't be real it does feel like the earth I don't know if it affects us on a personal level um, but it does feel like probability the rules of probability are changing <laughs> yeah I think well I think it's that we I think it's that we radically destabilize the culture not that it was so great before we don't want to be falsely idealistic but you know, everyone, we talked about this a bit last time we spoke because it's partly the subject of my book, Lost Connections, but everyone knows they've got natural physical needs, right? Yeah. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd obviously be fucked really quickly. But it's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs, right? Mm. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. Right. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at loads of things. I'm glad to be alive today. 
dentistry, gay marriage, a whole range of things. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs, partly because of neoliberalism, partly because of the corruption of our values, the idea that everything should be about money. A whole range of things have happened that have destabilized the culture. Now, I don't think that explains why someone comes from 50 points behind at the Super Bowl, but I do think it explains uh, not all, but a lot of the... If you create a society where people's psychological needs are not being met, where their basic needs as human beings are not being fulfilled, they will behave in increasingly erratic and bizarre ways. We know this from animals. If you, There's a phenomenon called zoocosis. If you put animals in a zoo where their needs are not met, right? So they think about a polar bear. A polar bear needs to roam around, right? You put a polar bear in a zoo, a lot of them will develop what's called zoocosis. They will go crazy, right? People... Uh, put in environments that are not compatible with their basic natures mm. will begin to behave in bizarre and erratic ways. I think this is partly what's going on with the Trump phenomenon. I don't, I don't want to overstate it. There's a lot of other things going on as well. Um, it's not a coincidence we're seeing these bizarre political events all over the world. I mean, you and I are speaking a few days before Brazil is almost certainly about to elect an actual fascist, yeah, right? Yeah. An open fascist. It will, be, yeah. it will be the first time since the Second World War that a major democracy has voted to, in effect, liquidate its own democracy. That is a terrifying threshold, right? I'm about to go to Brazil because um, uh, my book, Chasing the Scream, is coming out there. And I've spent a bit of time in Brazil and it, I'm very frightened for my Brazilian friends, some of whom are going to be murdered by this by this man's... Um, Do you know Glenn Russian. Greenwald by Oh, he's chance? a close friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's, a, a, he's a fascinating guy. Well, and he has personally... I mean, talk about the bravery of Glenn and his husband, David. Yeah. Um, you know, Bolsonaro has personally called Glenn a faggot repeatedly on Twitter and taunted him for being gay. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, frankly worried for Glenn and David. I mean, David is, um, so Glenn's husband, David, is um, the member, of, is one of the two elected members of um, a, a left-wing political party in the Rio Senate. And the other member, um, Mariella was was brutally murdered oh, not so long ago, four yeah, months ago. Yeah. Close friend of Glenn and David's for standing up to, well, for trying to expose that the fact that the police are murdering. Just and I saw this myself in favelas. They can just brazenly murder people uh, if they're poor and black. She was standing up to that. She got murdered. No one's been arrested. In fact, the the street that was named after Mariella, Bolsonaro supporters have ripped down the sign. I mean, this is a really bad sign. This is what they're doing during the campaign before they win. So, yeah, we're seeing this very disturbing... um, This very disturbing, seemingly irrational and pathological behaviour that I think is partly connected to... We've just built a culture that isn't compatible with our needs, many of our basic needs, and we need to correct the culture so that more people feel their needs are met, feel they're seen, feel they're heard, feel they're valued, feel their life has meaning and purpose, feel they have a future that makes sense. And until we do that, I think we're going to carry on having these very disturbing, very disturbing phenomena. You know? Do you think, it was interesting <clears throat> at the beginning of, of that, you said, don't get me wrong, I'm really happy to be alive today. And I find that happens often in these conversations people begin a critique of modern civilization with a disclaimer um almost like a hey some of my best friends are black kind of <laughs> kind of line you know and i'm very sensitive to that because uh in writing civilized to death 
this book that, by the sure. way, is coming out next fall. I f- the publishers accepted Hooray! it. Yeah, um, but you know how publishing is; everything's you know, a year <laughs> yeah. out. Um, in writing that, I came to the conclusion: like, I, I don't think modern civilization is really a net benefit, and yet, even when we make critiques of it, people feel the need to couch their critique in like, "Hey, don't get me wrong; like, I love modernity, you know, dentistry, dentistry." hunter-gatherers didn't need dentistry because they didn't get cavities. Cavities are an effect of the modern diet, right? I, th- I know what you mean, but even you said it's not a net benefit. So I think we've got to be careful to point out that there are real benefits. If I think about my ancestors, sure. right? Um, you know, my ancestors were Irish peasants and Swiss peasants, right? Even if I think about my grandparents' lives, my grandparents had fucking hard lives. Sure. One of my grandfathers dies, you know, when he's younger than I am now In after working on you know, the docks in Scotland. Um, my, my, my grandmother, you know, left with no support at all. She took keep her family in their home she cleans toilets she works every hour she can um my swiss grandparents they live on this mountain in switzerland my grandmother has no choices about her life at all forced to have these kids frankly didn't like her children didn't want to have children Mm. has this very i mean was a wonderful person in many ways wanted to be a painter you could there's no way a woman could be a painter in that situation ends up with this very frustrated life um my my my, probably of the four of them my swiss grandfather was probably the one who was happy and he was happy in a kind of simplistic patriarchal power you know um and they were lucky ones compared to the ones that were seven eight nine generations before them who would have died you know around the age I am now um, and which is not to say they wouldn't have had some things we don't have because they did yeah. um, well the, the, the key is are we comparing it to 100 years ago or are we comparing it to 10,000 years ago right. that, that's I mean that's a big difference but anyway I don't, sure. I don't I mean that's my shtick we don't, we don't <laughs> need to waste time on my shtick uh, what the hell are you going to talk to Mike Tyson about uh, my book Chasing the Scream which was oh. about the history of the war on drugs oh, and good. Okay. Uh, addiction um yeah, I, to be honest, I'm not really sure, but they just said they want to talk about the book. Oh, um, nice. So, yeah, and one of the things that's been really weird to me about Chasing the Scream um, is it's something I genuinely did not expect. I was a bit more ready for it with Lost Connections, but I did not expect when I was writing Chasing So, as you know, I'm a lefty, right? I'm a Chomskyan lefty. You know, I came to that through a journey. It wasn't my where I started, but... Um, <clears throat> you started as, as a conservative, right? No, no, I was never conservative, no? but I started as a kind of center left equivalent to the new democrats oh, Britain, okay. right no it was okay. never never i always hated but very it. mainstream yeah i mean my you know i think i grew up in this kind of working class family my dad was a bus driver um my formative experience is seeing the labor party being completely defeated again and again in britain um and then tony blair comes along and gets elected and i'm like yay great mm. and, he, and tony blair did do some really good things introduced mm. the minimum wage we didn't even have one introduced gay um you know most of the gay agenda there's a whole range of things tony blair did that were really good and then lots of catastrophic things he did you don't need me to tell you about yeah. and that that was real education for me and then I think really Chomsky was one of the figures that really changed my mind about a lot of things. Um, that's why it's been a real pleasure to get to know him over the last seven or eight years and, and do all this research on him. But the so yeah, I was I was on this journey, and I and by the you know by and more than a decade ago, I was kind of settled in this kind of I would say left wing kind of Chomskyan position. Um, and so when I wrote Chasing the Scream, you know. 
it's a, it's the it's the story of addiction and the war on drugs, right? Right, for a personal reason, one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. I didn't understand why then, but as I got older, I realized we had addiction in my family. And when it got to the time when I was researching this book eight years ago, starting to research this book eight years ago, some of the people I love were in a really bad, bad way. And I didn't know what to do. And um, part of me was very angry with them. Part of me was very compassionate to them. I wanted to understand what to do. So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world, over 30,000 miles. I wanted to sit with people whose lives had been changed by addiction, by the war on drugs, by the places that had solved addiction crises. So I ended up meeting just a crazy mixture of people, obviously leading experts, but also, you know, I mean, some people I most love, a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn, who's one of the smartest people I know, a mm. uh, hitman for one of the deadliest Mexican drug cartels in Juarez, who is not one of the smartest people I know. Um, you know, a, a guy who spends, a guy here in LA, actually, who spends a lot of time um, feeding hallucinogens to various animals to see what happens. And, and, and I learned... It's a weird hobby. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's a very strange guy. He, he, he mentioned, he's a super prestigious scientist. But he mentioned to me casually during the interview, he just said in passing, this is like the time I proved there's life after death. And I said, and he carried on, I said, oh, could you, sorry, could you just go back a second? And he said, oh, I don't have time to explain that now. <laughs> but the, so no, and, and so when I was writing it and going on this big journey, and obviously we're going to talk about lots of the things I learned. I, I was aware, firstly, the most likely thing that happens with any book is that no one reads it, right? Um, but I also th- imagined if it was read, it would be read by basically people in my, you know, broader political sphere. Mm. And that did happen. It was, you know, praised by people like Glenn, Greenwald, Naomi Klein, lots of people, and, and got a big left-wing readership. But one thing that most fascinated me and I did not see coming was how many people from completely different political parts of the spectrum really picked up this book and ran with it. So one of the biggest champions of the book, for example, an incredible person and definitely not the person I pictured when I was writing the book, is um, a conservative evangelical Republican state senator in Mississippi called Joel Bromgar, who's been buying copies of the book to give the entire Mississippi Senate. And it just, you know, is a really compassionate, good man. And I think part of the thing with both, the subjects of both my books, Chasing the Scream is about what causes addiction, the war on drugs, how we solve addiction crises, questions only become even more important since, since the book came out. And obviously, Lost Connections was about what causes the depression crisis and anxiety crisis and despair crisis we're going through and how we can solve that. Um, these things just completely cut across all, mm. you know, all aspects of the political spectrum. So Lost Connections is weirdly, it was the first book Hillary Clinton praised after the election. It was mm. Tucker Carlson on Fox News. So as you can imagine, it's a very, very different kind of politics to me. Mm. Um was ridiculously positive about it. And then, of course, the kind of people on our part of the political spectrum, yeah. there were lots of them were nice about it. So, so to me, this, that is in itself has been an education for me about, you know, part of what Chasing the Scream is about is saying never write off people with addiction problems, never write them off. But one of the things I kind of learned is actually never write off anyone. You don't know who's going to be persuaded. Mm. You don't know who's going to be persuaded by an appeal to love and compassion. Yeah, um, And it can be the most unlikely people. You know, Tucker Carlson... Uh, years ago, he was writing for some online. I don't know if it was Slate or or oh, the Baffler. Maybe he, he maybe. started there, yeah. like or, like or, somewhere like that. It must have been in the nineties, like maybe the mid nineties, something yeah. like that. Uh, but there there was email. I know because he wrote an article about drugs, and I wrote to him, and 
you know, he, it was sort of like just ignorant condemnation, you know, drugs are bad, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote to him and said, look, you got to distinguish different kinds of drugs. You have to distinguish, you know, psychedelics certainly from opioids. And you have to look, you know, psychedelics have all these useful, beneficial um, attributes. You know, they've been used. I laid out all the stuff, um, the clinical use. And, and he, to his credit, he wrote back to me and he said, you know, um, you're right. I don't know what I'm talking about with drugs. It sounds like you do. I hope you, you'll go on and write. You're, you're a really good writer and you obviously know your shit. And hmm. like he was incredibly decent and, and generous. And it's been weird to watch him veer into that, you know, bizarre landscape that he's in now. But it's, it's fascinating to me because the thing you're talking about, which is, so I learned lots of things on the journey for writing Chasing the Scream, but one of the things I realized is, I was certainly much more enlightened than it sounds like Tucker Carlson was when you wrote to him. You know, I certainly never had a kind of drugs are all bad or anything like that. But it amazed me how much, how would I put it? How I did not, how I'd deeply misunderstood profoundly basic aspects of this debate. So let's start, funny enough, I just did a, debate with Dr. Drew, who was uh, I was kind of appalled by, and Chris Christie, who I expected to be appalled by, and in fact was even more appalled than I expected But the, about this. But So, if you'd asked me at the start when I was doing the research for Chasing the Scream, let's say what causes addiction, right? Let's say what causes heroin addiction, something that played right. out close to me. Right. I would have looked at you like you're an idiot, and I would have said, well, the clue's in the name, dummy, right? Obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction. Right. We've been told this story for 100 years. It's become part of our common sense. It's leading us to deeply misunderstand the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we think, you know, we're sitting here in a hotel in Santa Monica. We think if if we, you and I went and kidnapped the first 20 people to walk past this hotel in Santa Monica and we injected them all with heroin every day for a month like some villain in a Saw movie... At the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There's chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to have this desperate physical craving for. And that's what addiction is. We think it's a longing for the chemical hook. That's why we call it being hooked, right? That's Mm -hmm. what I thought. So I thought I'd literally seen this play out in front of me. Um, The first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something wrong with that story is when it was explained to me by lots of doctors in Britain, where I'm from, um, if you step out into the street and get hit by a truck and you break your hip... You'll be taken to hospital and you'll be given loads of a a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's much better heroin than you would score up the street in Venice because that's shitty street heroin, right? It's medically pure heroin. People in British hospitals are sometimes given that for quite long periods of time. If anyone listening to this has a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother's taken a lot of really good heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused by exposure to the chemical hooks alone, Mm. what should be happening to all these people in British hospitals? Significant numbers of them should be leaving and trying to score on the streets. This has been studied. It virtually never happens, right? It's almost unheard of. And when I learned that, I thought, well, how can that be? That doesn't make sense, right? Right. How can you have someone in a hospital bed, be given shitloads of heroin, they they virtually never become addicted, and you've got someone in the alleyway outside using a much weaker form of heroin, who does? I, what's going on here? I didn't understand it. I kept, frankly, I didn't believe it. But I kept looking at the scientific evidence, kept talking to doctors, like, what is this? And I only began to understand it when I went to Vancouver and met an incredible man called Professor Bruce Alexander, oh, who's yeah. really changed. Exactly. He's yeah. really changed how we think about yeah. addiction that has led to some remarkable changes in other countries that we can talk about. But so 
Professor Alexander explained to me, this story we have in our heads, that addiction is caused just by the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners could try them at home if they feel a bit sadistic. You take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water. The other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go. That's our story. You might remember there's a famous Nancy Reagan era advert. Just advertisement. No. Yeah. yeah. It will happen to you or whatever yeah. they say. Right? This is your brain on drugs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. You're putting the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like paradise for rats. They got loads of friends. They can have loads of sex. They got loads of cheese. They got loads of colored balls. Mm. They got loads of little wheels. They can run anything a rat wants in life. It's there in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water. And of course, they try both. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water very much. Yeah. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So when the rats don't have the things that make life meaningful, you have almost 100% compulsive use and death right when they do you have no compulsive use and they live natural lifespans right this is zucosis again it's, it's well i think it's partly zucosis it's, it's, it's exactly it's about unmet um unmet psychological needs i mean one of the things i infer from this and there's lots of human examples i'm sure we'll get to is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety the opposite of addiction is connection hmm. the, the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. Mm-hmm. And once you once you understand that, you can see why the primary response of our society to the addiction crisis is such a shit show. What do we do? We have the war on drugs, which is premised on the idea people with addiction problems need to have more pain imposed on them to give them an incentive to stop. But once you realize that pain is the fuel, pain is the cause, you can see, and that then leads to this problematic relationship with the substance, but the substance is the symptom. Substance use is the symptom of the pain and an, and, a, and, a, and an attempt to treat the pain. You can see why this is such a disaster. Sometimes people say, you know, oh, the war on drugs doesn't work when it comes to addiction. It's much worse than that. It makes the problem worse. So in mm. Arizona, I went out with a group of women who were made to go out on a chain gang wearing t-shirts saying I was a drug addict while members of the public mock them and jeer at them, right? It's not true to say that fails to stop their addiction. What that does is it makes their addiction worse. They're even more traumatized, even more broken, even more fucked up when they leave, right? That's a more complicated, that, 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 that's a, a more extreme failure than just, right. yeah. You're trying to put out fires with kerosene. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's good enough. It's a really good analogy. Um, so how does this reflect in your sense of the disease model of addiction, is the do you sort of buy into the disease model, but the disease is culture is generated by culture, or do you think the disease model is flawed fundamentally? It depends what people mean when they're talking about it as a disease. I think yeah. this is true across the entire mental health. Um, mm, good, uh, yeah, good a, point. A question about mental health, right? If what people mean is, I didn't choose this and I can't just snap out of it. They're totally right. Mm-hmm. So uh, generally, I think we'll say this is a... Dis- and also, I should not be stigmatized and treated like shit for this. Those three points are absolutely true. I believe them completely passionately. I think, however, there's a, there's a slight problem if we interpret the disease idea in a different way or in a parallel way or extend it further. So what we've done 
if you think about the model of infectious disease, right? Um, so if you think about the whole way of thinking about infectious diseases that comes from biological, you know, very heavily biological medicine, that has done some absolutely extraordinary things, right? There are pathogens. Think about the smallpox. Smallpox is one of the worst things that ever happened to human beings. Horrific, died in agony, killed humans, you know, going back with their mummies in ancient Egypt that had smallpox, right? And using this biomedical model of identifying the identifying the underlying biological causes and vaccination and so on, smallpox no longer exists. No one has, no, not a single human being has died of smallpox in more than 25 years because we use that, that, that absolutely correct model based on infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. There has been an attempt to simplistically transfer that to mental health problems. Right. And it has not worked well, right? It's not to say there have been no benefits from it. There have been some benefits. I, I don't believe that, you know, I don't agree with the radical anti-psychiatry people who think it's all been a shit show and all been a disaster. That's, I think it's too, going too far. But um, there's a very broad agreement um, when you look at the research scientists, which is almost never explained to the public, especially not here in the United States, that all mental health problems and all individuals with any mental health problem, there are three kinds of causes that are playing out. There's biological causes, things like your genes, real changes in your brain. There are psychological causes, how you think about yourself. And there are social causes, so how we live together. Um, they are all, play- let's think about something, even something that's as heavily biological as dementia, right? Obviously, dementia has a, is driven by a biological cause, right? Physical deterioration of the brain or plaques developing in the brain. Of, it depends what form of dementia it is. Even with dementia, there's a very heavily psychological and social component. People with very strong social connections develop dementia much more slowly. Uh, people who speak more than one language develop dementia much more slowly. People with certain mental habits develop dementia much more slowly. So even where there is an extreme, and dementia is the one where the biological cause is most mm, heavily right. driven. I mean, some people would argue schizophrenia as well, and there is definitely a, a bigger biological component with schizophrenia than with many other things. Um, so these, the, So all three of these are true, right? Now, I think what a lot of people hear when they hear it's a disease is it simply has a biological cause and it simply has a biological solution. Now, there are lots of sophisticated people who argue that addiction is a disease who don't say that, right? So I don't want to lump them all in. But I think telling people an overly biological story is deeply problematic. Um, I think it cuts people off from understanding the causes of their pain. I think we're telling a very simplistically biological story about the opioid crisis, for example. Uh, I'll tell you how. Um, So, if you look at at the story that Dr. Drew was telling, for example, I I don't want to put words in his mouth, people can watch the video, Um, I think it's going to be put on C-SPAN, but the, the story that has come to dominate American culture about why the opioid crisis has happened is to me disturbingly similar to the Nancy Reagan story about the so-called crack epidemic, right? Or in fact, the story that was told about alcoholism that led to alcohol prohibition. So Nancy Reagan's story is evil drug dealers have sold this uniquely potent substance to these people and we need to crack down on the evil drug dealers and get the drug to disappear and we need to, you know, punish the the users as well right? no, no pun intended with cracking down yeah oh yeah good point <laughs> <laughs> um and i thought we'd made some progress in in seeing that that story is grossly simplistic in fact wrong um 
And yet, here we are, and a kind of liberal version of the Nancy Reagan narrative has come along. People say, well, why is the opioid... Even people I love and admire and respect, and I mm. regard as my allies in many ways, have come along with a story that says, why did the opioid crisis happen? Evil drug dealers, in this case Purdue, sold this uniquely potent substance to these people, and, we need, and all we need to do is crack down. Now, Purdue are disgusting people. I support the lawsuit against them. Um, they did missell these drugs. They didn't warn properly about many of the harms that can come from them. But I've got to tell you, that is missing most of the picture by talking that way, mm. right? So um, I think one best way to understand it is, is an analogy. Um, so in Britain, in the 18th century, an interesting thing happened. He- terrible thing. Huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums in places like London and Manchester to make way for industrialization, right? So they, they lose everything that makes life meaningful. And they're living in this place they don't understand where they haven't been able to build communities and make sense of anything. And what happened was something called the gin craze. There was an outbreak of mass alcoholism. It really happened. It was a catastrophe. Huge. So there's a famous painting from the time people can look up by a painter called Hogarth called Gin Lane of a woman downing a bottle of gin while her baby falls off a really high spot, right? Things like that actually did happen. And if you look at what people said at the time, what they said was, look at this evil drug gin. Mm-hmm. Look at what it's done to us. If only we could get rid of this evil drug gin, this problem would go away. Mm. Now, when we look back at the gin craze, we know it can't be gin that caused it. Because anyone in Britain can go and buy gin if they're over the age of 18. And while we still have some alcoholism, we don't have, you know, mass alcoholism, babies falling out of windows and so on. What changed? Wasn't the availability of gin. Gin is more available now than it was in 18th century Britain. What changed was the amount of pain and distress in the society, right? There are, if you want to understand why this is a society where so many people are turning to painkillers, that that average of white male life expectancy has fallen for the first time in the history of the peacetime United States, mm-hmm. going right back to the founding, you've got to, you've got to ask why people are in such pain, right? Yeah. The, the, it's not a coincidence that... So let's think about this. The faculty at Harvard have much easier access to opioid-based painkillers because they've got great health insurance than the population of a town in West Virginia where a former coal mining town, right? Or let's say Monadnock in New Hampshire where I spent some time. Because those people have almost no health insurance, most of them, right? Why is the addiction rate massively higher in West Virginia and Monadnock than it is on the faculty at Harvard, right? Because they're in a lot more pain. Not to say there aren't some people in deep pain in Harvard. Of course there are. Um, where are the where are the opioid deaths clustering in the United States? Yeah, they are, they are. It's not just poverty, although that's a big factor. Mm. It's unmet psychological needs, right? Mm. Which helps explain why it runs throughout the society, but concentrates most in the most distressed areas. Mm. So um, it's not a coincidence that the opioid deaths are far and away at their highest in the places where non-opioid-based suicides are also at their highest, where mm-hmm. antidepressant prescriptions are there. If it was just caused by exposure to the drug, we would not expect that to be the case, right? If it was just exposure to the drug, we would see it evenly... Dist- in fact, we would see it clustered more in a place like Santa Monica where more people can access the drug. Right. And that's not what's happening. It's not clustering where drug availability is. It's clustering where despair and distress is. This is why the brilliant economists Anne Case and Angus Deaton <clears throat> have called these deaths of despair, yeah. right? And by the way, it's also happening in the places where people most voted for President Trump, right? Which I think also tells you something, right. um, which is not in any way a defense of the decision to vote for Trump, which I think was a 
obviously a catastrophe. But it, but it is a response to pain. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, but th- now getting back to the, you know sort of circling around to to what you said earlier, uh, we need to change the culture to address this these this absence of meaning and and the psychological needs that are being unmet. Do you feel that th- this this situation is an aberration? Is it a bug or is it a feature of of modern civilization? Because I tend to think it's a feature. But it yeah. seems like you think it's a bug that can be, I mean, maybe Portugal is a counterexample to, to where I, I come from, because it seems like they have, you know, you know more about this than I do, certainly, but it seems like Portugal made a decision to address the root causes of addiction. I'll and, give you a different example yeah. of, of Switzerland. And I'll talk about the wider thing about modernity. Right. Um, so I'm a Swiss citizen because my dad's from there. Although I'm obviously British and I spend a lot of my time here in the US. But so in the year 2000, Switzerland had a massive, um, massive heroin and opioid crisis. It was a catastrophe. Mm. And Swiss people are obsessed with order. So to them, this was particular. It's not a coincidence they invented clocks, right? To them, this is like unbearable. They, I mean, it was it should be unbearable to any society. People, you know, injecting heroin in the neck in public parks in Zurich, things like that. And uh, they tried punishment, shame, stigma, all sorts of things. Problem keeps getting worse. And then they got a totally incredible woman I got to know called Ruth Dreyfus. Became the Minister of Health and then the President. First ever female president. Mm. You guys might want to try that one day. Um, and, and she explained to the, the, the people of Switzerland, when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is anarchy and chaos. What we have now with criminalization is anarchy and chaos. Mm -hmm. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users, all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease, and chaos. What she proposed was to legalize heroin for people with addiction problems. It's important to say that doesn't mean no one is in favor of legalizing heroin on the model we've legalized cannabis in many parts of the US now. No one thinks there should be a heroin aisle in CVS, right? That's not the suggestion. The way it works is... If you've got heroin addiction, you're assigned to a clinic. I went to the one in Geneva. The former president, Ruth, lives opposite this clinic, which I think tells you something about both her and Switzerland. Um, You're assigned to this clinic. You go at seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, You're given your heroin there. You can't take it out with you uh, because they... Partly they don't want you to sell it or get right. on the street. Right. And also they want a, a nurse watches you while you shoot up. Uh, you're given, obviously, medically pure heroin. Then you leave to go to your job. Because <clears throat> they give you massive amounts of support to find housing, employment, and therapy to deal with the reasons why you're in such distress. Um, so think about what they do. It's two things. Give you the drug. Give you massive amounts of support to figure out why you need the drug for as long as you need that support. Exact opposite of what we do. We take away the drug. The minute your doctor finds out you are using it for addic- because you're addicted, not because of pain relief, by law, they have to cut you off or they'll be accused of running a pill mill. They'll think some of them have, in fact, gone to prison. Uh, and we then give you a criminal record. Far from helping you, we give you the opposite. We put barriers between you and connecting. Mm. So let's look at the results of the Swiss program. There have been zero heroin overdose deaths on the legal heroin program in Switzerland in 15 years. So since it began, not mm. one person has died. There's been an enormous fall in addiction outside the the program because people have transferred into it. Swiss people are extremely conservative. My Swiss relatives make Trump look like Oprah. Uh, And yet, Swiss people, once this had been in practice for two years, had a referendum. They voted by 70% to keep heroin legal, partly just because crime fell so much, right? Um, But to me, one of the things that was most surprising and most important, I think, for understanding 
the opioid crisis here is that if you're in that program, they will give you any dose you want except for one that will actually kill you. You set your own dose and you can stay on that program and taking whatever dose you want for as long as you want. There's never any pressure to cut back or stop. But almost everyone does cut back and stop. By the time I... um, by the time I went there, it was 13 years since the program had begun, and there was like three people who were still on the program from the start. Hmm. And I remember saying to um, Rita Mangi, who's the woman who runs this program, uh, the psychiatrist, I, d- I don't understand this. We're told that the chemical hooks take people over, they need more and more. How can it be that... So surely if you just let people have an infinite dose, they'll just carry on taking it. And she, and she looked at me like I was an idiot and said, well, we help them so their lives get better. And as your life gets better, you don't want to be anaesthetized so much, which is such an obvious, almost banal insight, and yet so revolutionary compared to what we've begun to think. So we think about this in relation to the opioid crisis. What do people, the people I have met across the United States who have opioid addictions need, right? They do not need to have that drug taken away in the absence of help and support, right? Uh, or even with help and support. What they need is two things. They need to be given the drug for as long as they're addicted to it, and they need to be given massive amounts of love and support to find out why they're in such pain, to change their lives, uh, to get things stable things like housing and employment um, and love and value and meaning. Um, and if we do that long enough, they will choose most, the vast majority of them. They will not want to be anaesthetized so much, right? But that's a completely... The danger is if you go in with the narrative that Dr. Drew was giving when I debated this with him the other day, which is the evil drug has done this to people. What that does is to... And we can see this in places that have already tried this, like Oklahoma, a wonderful man called Dr. Hal Voss, who I interviewed is in Oklahoma, who talks about this. If you demonize the drug, the logical solution is, well, let's stop giving people the drug. Yeah. What happens? They just go to the street and get heroin where they're much more likely to die. Right. right? Um, or they transfer to another for sort of addiction. What do you think about gambling or, or sex addiction, so-called? I hate to even use the phrase. I think it's a good phrase. And I think the, I think you're absolutely right. What's, what are called the behavioral addictions, which were first identified by a friend of mine, Stanton Peel, in the 70s. Stanton Peel. You know Stanton, Sure. You? Yeah, he's a cantankerous yeah. guy. <laughs> but he's... Uh, but I, I mean, I, I have my arguments with Stanton, uh, yeah. but I, I like him enormously. Yeah. Um, the, so the behavioral addictions tell us something really profound about addiction, right? Yeah. It, I don't know where it would be, but somewhere here in Santa Monica or very close to here, there will be a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous tonight, right? Anyone who's curious, go and sit in on a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous. If you tell me you just want to observe it, they'll probably let you. You will find that every one of them is as addicted as anyone you'll meet in Narcotics Anonymous right. and down the corridor, right? Yeah. And yet... There is no chemical hook in gambling. Mm -hmm. You don't inject a roulette wheel. You don't snort a pack of cards, right? This tells us something really profound about addiction. Professor David Nutt talks about this. Um, If you can have all of the addiction and none of the chemical hooks, that tells us something about how we've overstated the role of chemical hooks. It's not that chemical hooks aren't real. They are real. We can measure them. They play a real role. Physical dependence is real. Anyone I've nursed someone who's going through heroin withdrawal, it's a real thing, right? But it's a relatively small part of addiction. Right. So there is a case for restricting initial opioid prescriptions, right? Um while being aware that that um those people are going to be in terrible pain for other reasons if you restrict them, right? Um there's a case for that. 
Um, there is no case when someone has become addicted for throwing them off, right? That's the car crash. What they need is a Swiss-style program. But we're nowhere near that, right? And what we're doing is we're applauding people who are in a work completely... And there's this new book, Dope Sick, and there's... Um, um, what's it called? The, um, again, at good journalists doing good reporting. Um, Dreamland by Sam Canones. Again, an admirable person. Um but promoting these dangerously simplistic narratives about why why this has happened. And if you tell if you've only got a partial map of the territory, you can't find your way through the mm. territory, right? But don't we know this? I mean, hasn't this been demonstrated over and over and over again that the substance isn't the problem? I mean, Rat Park was in the seventies, yeah. I think, right? Um it, it seems to me, and again, this gets back to the feature versus bug issue. It it feels to me like there's an incredible resistance to acknowledging what has been proven again and again, at least in the United States. There's something different about Switzerland, about Portugal, about Holland that allows this sort of harm reduction approach to Canada. Gabor Mate, I'm sure you've, you've spoken. Yeah, yeah him. I suppose it's a chapter about him in Chasing the Scream. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in the United States, because we could apply this to criminal um, sure. uh, reform as well. Right. We know it's cheaper to send someone to uh, UC Berkeley than to send them to prison. And that they would benefit from that. It's been demonstrated, you know, you give them support, give them housing. Uh, that's going to help them throw them in prison. It's going to make it worse. We know that. Well, and yet know, we continue to do it because it's emotionally satisfying somehow. I think it's more. You've gone to a really important point. It's deeper than it's emotionally satisfying. There's a very complex range of reasons why we are resistant to these causes. You know, it's funny, I think you and I talked about this last time we met, but when I wrote my book about depression, which uh, Lost Connections, which is about um, how this epidemic of depression and anxiety is caused in part by changes in the way we live, and I go through nine causes of depression and anxiety. When I started promoting that book and trying to explain it to people, I used an analogy that I had to stop using in the United States because I thought it elucidated it and people could not understand what I was saying a lot of them mm. so I would say we all know obesity has massively risen and we all know obesity has risen because of social factors Not it's not just that people mysteriously suddenly got lazy in 1972 it's that we built cities that you can't walk and bike around we changed our food supply in absolutely toxic ways and so on and I said depression is like that right? There's been changes in the way we live that have supercharged depression and anxiety. It's not just that people got weak or they suddenly... I had to stop saying that because so many people replied, but fat people are lazy. This is such an individualistic culture. I think Mm. the the poison at the heart of this culture, and this is true of Trump and across the board, is extreme individualism, right? right? When I was a child, Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as um, society, there's only individuals and their families. And this has been so deeply absorbed into the culture yeah. that when you when you try to talk about social causes, a lot of people literally can't understand what you're saying, right? Yeah. They, so, you, so when I wrote a book about depression saying that, you know, there's these deep social causes, I had some people who admittedly, to be fair, hadn't read the book, said, so you're saying it's my fault. Fuck you. How dare you? You're like, essentially, if you, if you, it's like people are trapped in this, this polarity Either something is a biolog- purely biological phenomenon, in which case you're not to blame in inverted commas, or it's an individual flaw. Right. So if you come along and say the biology is real, but it's been somewhat overstated, what a lot of people hear is, fuck, you're saying it's my fault, 
right? Because it's it's so hard to get people to think in the category of the social. I mean, a parody of this is Donald Trump, where people, Donald Trump was sold to the American people as a self-made man. We now know whatever it is, he was making $200,000 a month as a three-year-old because his dad just gave it to him. We now know that if Donald Trump had just taken the money that Fred Trump, his dad, left him when he died and and just um, put it in a blind trust and didn't touch it at all, he would have significantly more money than he has now, right? <laughs> so, um, I mean, if it had just been literally randomly invested in the stock market, it yeah. would have, he yeah. would be significantly richer than he is now. And yet he is presented to us as the heroic, in, and, he, and he genuinely believes he's a heroic individual who's done it all himself. You know, Molly Ivins said about George Bush Jr., the great tex- late Texas journalist Molly Ivins said, he was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple, right? Mm. <laughs> This culture where even such an obvious social cause as Donald Trump was handed loads of money as a child, he squandered most of it but remains rich, right? Even that, a lot of people can't see. And I don't criticize them for it. We've been indoctrinated in... It's a sign of how deep this, this individualism is in the culture that even our most banal cliches are wrong. When someone feels bad, we say... Be yourself. Be you. Treat yourself. You know, one of the most interesting people I interviewed for Lost Connections was this woman called Brett Ford, who, um, she, she's a academic. She was at Berkeley at the time. She's at, in Toronto now, at the University of Toronto. But she, with her colleagues, did this really interesting research. Kind of simple. They wanted to figure out if you try, if you decided you were going to spend more time trying to make yourself happier, consciously, would you become happier? And they did this research in four places, in the United States, in Japan, in Russia, and in Taiwan. What they found was fascinating. In the United States, if we try to make ourselves happier, we don't become happier. But in the other countries, if you try to make yourself happier, you do. And they're like, what's going on? So they did more research. What they found was, of course, there were exceptions on both sides, but generally... In the US, if you try to make yourself happier, you do something for yourself, right? Mm, you go shopping, right. you show you off on Instagram, whatever. Right. In the other countries, generally, if you try to make yourself happier, you do something for someone else, your friends, your family, or your community. We have an instinctively individualistic idea of what happiness is. They have an instinctively collectivist idea of what happiness Let is. Let me challenge you on the word instinct. I think the instinct, the human instinct, is toward community. That's I a good think, correction. I think yeah. it's a, a social indoctrination, as you're saying. I think that's a really good point. Which it's, runs counter to our nature as, it, as animals. Exactly. I think that's actually an extremely important correction. It's an implicitly individualist idea that you're mm. right. And it's very unnatural, right? And has to be really indoctrinated into us. Right. Of course, individualism That's why is, we're civilized to death. Because the civilization is teaching us how not to live. It's, it's anti-human. Yeah. Essentially anti-human. Yeah, Professor Tim Kasser, who's an amazing man who I interviewed a lot for Lost Connection, said to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is meaningful about life. Exactly. Um, Everyone knows it's a banal cliche to say you're not going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the things you bought, right? Right. Um, Or how many likes you got on Twitter, right? You're going to think about all the moments of meaning and connection and love in your life, deep meaning. Um, but yeah, we would design, I guess, in terms of the debate about modernity, so I'll give you, I, I think about this in a very kind of practical way. So I went and spent some time in an Amish village called Elkhart Lagrange in Indiana, 
for, for Lost Connections because there's evidence that I hope somebody filmed that <laughs> I want to see you I'll send you the audio around well look I'm, I'm a left wing gay atheist right and I and I rewatched without Witness without a beard exactly and I watched I watched Witness the night before I went oh, really? right so like that was your research uh, and and <laughs> And, and and the reason why I feel a bit conflicted about what you're saying, I know you're not arguing we should all become Amish, but I sort of want to caricature what you're saying. But but the Amish, so I can see part of what you're saying from being in the, with the Amish, right? right? So Amish have significantly lower levels of depression, for example. There's good evidence of this. There's a good study of, the, not the Amish, but the Hutterites, who are kind of even more hardcore. They're like the, the Amish to the Amish. Mm. Um and there's a, a good a Professor John Cassiopo who just died sadly did really good research on this. So you, what you can do um, when people are depressed, uh, a good way of measuring depression physically is people will have a lot of what are called micro awakenings in their sleeps. So you won't remember it, but you, um, you 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 kind of jolt awake a little bit more during your sleep when you're depressed. It's called micro awakenings, mm. and they think it's because if you were depressed on the savannas of Africa where we evolved, it probably meant that you were alone and that and that you were actually in danger. So you would, your body wouldn't let you rest as much, right? Mm. That's a theory that's not proven, but that's, I think it's a fairly persuasive theory. Anyway, you can, so you can measure how depressed people are in a kind of quite cross-cultural way by measuring their micro-awakenings. Because um, often, obviously, there's a difference in how much people would be willing to say they were depressed. So micro-awakenings are actually a good way of getting a more kind of objective measure. And the Hutterites have the lowest level of micro-awakenings of any humans who've ever been measured. Right, hmm. so there is something genuinely less unhappy about them, um, and the Amish are a little bit less extreme than the Hutterites. But, and I could see when I was there, these are people with a very deep sense of meaning and purpose, um, exceptionally high levels of equality within the genders, and there's a big gap between the genders, and we'll get to that. They have, you know, um, uh. There's no inequality at all among men and no inequality at all among women. There's inequality between them. The richest Amish man is as wealthy as the poorest Amish man. Um, there's, and we know that inequality increases a sense of humiliation and um, correlates with depression and anxiety and actually causes depression and anxiety. Um, so I could see all these positive things. I could also see nightmarish things. Women's lives are fucking terrible among the Amish, Right. They're subjected to terrible physical violence. They're, they're explicitly told by their religious authorities to put up with it. Children are subjected to quite a lot of violence. Mm. And weirdly, the Amish village actually reminded me uncannily of my dad's Swiss village because, I mean, my dad almost, I mean, he didn't grow up in an Amish village, but the world my dad grew up in was much closer to an Amish village than like our life here in Santa Monica, right? Um, I mean, they even speak Hochdeutsch, the, the, very mm. similar to Swiss German. Um, you know, it was this place with, I mean, there were no phones in my dad's village when he was growing up. My dad's only 71, right? There were no phones in my dad's village when he grew up, or I think it might have been one. So what's the source of the violence then, if, if they're happy and equal? I, I don't have the view of human nature that you have. I think this is where we disagree. Mm. I don't think the, the dark impulses in human beings are, I don't want to attribute a view to you, so correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think the dark aspects of human nature are solely the product of maladaptive living I think there are some dark aspects of human beings that are just dark aspects of human beings that you could design any society and there would still be 
a tremendous capacity for cruelty and and domination and all sorts of things in human beings alongside a tremendous now different environments will unleash different amounts of that in human Mm -hmm. beings i don't want to imply that it's just equal in all environments that's not the case i think we've created an environment that has supercharged some of the problems we're talking about but i do think um it's why i wouldn't want a whole scale critique of modernity um I believe there is real value to many aspects of modernity. Um, And I think what I want is an adapted modernity that meets people's underlying psychological needs and does not destroy the ecosystem, right? Now, Mm. it may be you're right and such a thing is not possible, right? And I'm open to that conversation. That would be my ideal goal. And I suspect if we talked about what that actually meant, you and I would basically agree on what it looked like, right? Mm. So I don't want to get an, uh, have a kind of artificial disagreement with you. It may be just that we would use different language to describe sure. what that thing looks like. Uh, well, that, you know, maybe we would disagree on some marginal things, but I don't think we would significantly disagree. But um, I don't... Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes great sense. And... and I would love to continue unpacking this with you, but I know that Mike Tyson is waiting. <laughs> this is the I'm first time that sentence this. has ever been said to me, right? The, <laughs> exactly. It's the last time you'll see me with both ears. The fucking Mike Tyson, man. He's, he's ruining my day again. I know. <laughs> I think he'll probably be quite physically intimidated by me, though. So I think what do you he think? will be. Yeah. You should just go in there and slap him upside the head. <laughs> exactly. I, I think Mike Tyson is actually a really sweet person. I, every, I saw him. He's, I think he's been on Rogan's podcast a few right times and, and he did this broadway show have you heard of yeah i heard like about a one it, yeah. man show i mean he's actually he's a really sweet tragic character i, I, I know very little about him and, oh really yeah yeah oh my god like really rough he, childhood he co-wrote his um, memoir with an amazing man called larry sloman mm. who who wrote one of the great books about the drug war a book called reef of madness back in the 70s he's oh a yeah totally fascinating guy i've never met larry sloman I've, I've tried to and he's not he doesn't seem to be interested but the um uh, he's a really fascinating person. Yeah, yeah. It's always a slightly weird thing, isn't it, when you meet um, people who've existed in your consciousness as almost like archetypes, yeah. right? Like yeah. uh, when you when you meet them, it's a peculiar. It's their, a peculiar their humanity is surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, my, and I think Mike Tyson is actually an extremely vulnerable, beautiful person, right. and his violence mm. uh, sort of. Um, Occupied the role of what we're talking about with with um, drugs and and other compulsive behaviors, and it was his way of avoiding the pain of his life. Can you watch boxing? Yeah, I grew up watching boxing. Right. I boxed myself. Did you? Because really? I grew up in the heyday of Muhammad Ali and you know George Foreman and Joe Frazier. Like that was when boxing right. was the thing, and Muhammad Ali was a heroic sure. figure, of course, right? I essentially I just can't watch it. Yeah, I can't watch it. I, I have trouble with UFC. Right. Even right. though my buddy Joe's, you know, there commenting and, you know, invites me to go to Vegas and see it and stuff. To me, and I know, and, and Joe's explained to me, like, people are much less likely to be hurt in UFC fighting. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. He said um, that to me. And I think, because, uh, yeah, I think partly because I experienced some quite extreme violence as a child, it might be related mm. to that. Although, actually, clearly a lot of boxers have experienced that. So mm. maybe actually some people react a different way. Yeah. But I, I, I have such a low capacity to and when i see i've watched kind of um i recently watched some of the dick cavett interviews with Muhammad, or maybe one of the dick cavett interviews with muhammad ali and i just thought it was so heartbreaking because to me muhammad ali was this unbelievably beautiful man in yeah. every sense like yeah. spiritually physically yeah. just like this and then i just yeah. think what a 
fucking shit society that takes this astonishingly beautiful man and what's the one thing we ask him to do? Just get punched in the fucking head, right? Mm. So badly it breaks him and he can't even fucking speak by the end of his life, you know? I don't know, maybe, I'm not just, I know there are people who find boxing beautiful and, I mean, I even find American football, I I went to see, I took my nephew to see a game at the Superdome in New Orleans a little while back and the, Fuck me, the violence of American football. What yeah. a. You really see the expressions of the violence of the society through the recreational pleasures. And then and you see them like cart the guy off. Yeah. You know? And they look and then they're dead. Just, yeah. Right? yeah. It's like, what the fuck? You know, like, everyone's like cheering. I'm like, wait, is that guy dead? Yeah. Right. And I assumed he wasn't because I assumed people would be reacting with a bit more shock if someone died on this. But no, it's 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 a society with a frighteningly high tolerance for for real violence. And I appreciate the argument, you know. Uh, among black men. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, all, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting to see. It's yeah. like, oh, it's two black guys beating each other up for yeah. our entertainment. Yeah, it's not that far off kind of Django scenarios, right? Like the the yeah. they'll fight for us and we'll right. we'll cheer and watch. But and if they gladiators. get but if they get inverted commas uppity and start fucking refusing to kneel for the anthem or whatever, <laughs> then we'll yeah. turn on them with every right. ounce of our rage right. that we have. Right? It's like we yeah. your role is to be brutalized. I, mean, I remember the when Whitney Houston died here in L.A. The um, uh, remind me to tell you I heard Joan Rivers make the best joke ever about that. But the um, <laughs> about Whitney, when, Whitney when, Houston's death. Yeah, Ouch. when when Whitney um, when Whitney died here in L.A. Um, you know, one of the moments that was presented as this great progressive was when she sang the national anthem at the super super uh, the the Super Bowl. I can't remember what year it was. It was during the Gulf War, I think. Mm. And they say, you know, look at this incredibly symbolically powerful moment, and it's Whitney, and the fucking fighter jets fly over, and you think, this is progress of a kind. I can see that it's progress of a kind, but I can also see what the militarism of these planes flying over. They're going to kill a load of brown people, and and Whitney's standing in front of a load of brown people who are about to be beaten to shit and given brain damage to entertain the mostly white nation. I mean, it's sort of progress, but I wouldn't, <laughs> you know, like that there's a black woman doing it rather than a white woman. Okay, yeah. I can see. Yeah. I don't want to diminish that. Yeah. But can I tell you the joke that is the last thing oh, that Joan sure, Rivers said about sure. Winston? So I saw Joan Rivers. I'm trying to remember <laughs> if it was on stage. Uh, this could be a conflated memory, but I think it was. So she comes on stage. It can't be long after Whitney died. And she goes, I can't do an American accent. She goes, I feel so sad about Whitney. I feel so sad. She's almost crying. And you're like, I wish she actually having an emotion. And she goes, I could have saved her life. I could have saved her life. Because, you know, Whitney drowned in a bathtub. Yeah. To understand this. Uh, She goes, Whitney asked me to get into that bath with her that night. And my vagina is so dry. (laughs) That water would have gone fucking whoosh. There's no way she could have drowned in what was left. I could have saved her. I love Joan Rivers so Joan much. Rivers. I feel so sad that she's dead. She didn't die in a bathtub. Tragically not. <laughs> I think I actually think, as a very last thought, that Joan Rivers had the perfect death. She was at the top of her game till she yeah. was 83. Yeah. She does a stand-up gig like two nights before she dies. She goes in for what she thinks is a minor operation. She's given oh, a lovely anesthetic right. yeah. and never wakes up. Yeah. Who wouldn't want that? Great. Yeah. I mean, I wish she'd lived another 10 years and yeah. you know been the joyful person she was. Um, but what a great... What a great way to go. What a way to live and what a great way to die. Yeah. Perfect. Johan, I don't want to keep you. Thank, right. thank you <laughs> don't so much. Don't get me from man. Mike Tyson. He might get pissed <laughs> off. Um, I should just say is the last thing that my yeah, publishers yeah. always tell me off if I don't say this. Uh, anyone who wants any more information about either of the books we've talked about, where you can get the audio book. Uh, if you go to- Did you do the audio book? I did. Uh, you can go- Did they at, keep telling you to slow down? 
They did. I also had a, I also had a really <laughs> fucking weird experience about uh, five weeks ago. I was in Australia uh-huh. and I was standing at a bus stop uh, just waiting for the bus. And I heard my own voice talking about depression. And I thought, I literally thought I have, I was extremely tired. I thought, oh my God, I've, I've begun to hallucinate. I've lost my mind. Right. <laughs> and then I realized someone in a car in front of me was listening to the audio book no of my shit. book. Yeah. That's but hilarious. it was a complete, it took me about 10 seconds to realize what was happening in which I was genuinely fucking they're, freaked they're out. And the window down. Yeah. I didn't say anything. I've oh. only once seen anyone read my book in public and it was a terrible, I made a terrible mistake. It was on a plane uh-huh. and they were reading the Spanish version, Tras el Grito, and, um, of Chasing the Scream. And um, I, I, my Spanish is appalling. And so I got to the person and go, me disculpa, uh, as it's me, Libro. As it's me, Libro. And the person said, no, as no, it's me, Libro. And I said, like, no, me, Libro. And I was so excited. Yeah. And the person just looked really terrified like I was trying to steal the book and I had to just walk off. And they never knew. Uh-huh. So... Great. Anyway, so the thing I was meant to say is, so you interrupt me. If you want any more information about the book, if you, uh-huh. uh, any of these books, you can take a quiz to see how much you know about the questions we've been talking about. You can listen to audio of loads of the people we've been talking about. Uh, if you go to www.joha.com, you can also see where to follow me on social media and all that fucking bullshit. All right. Hooray. Thank you, Johan. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's to right. death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Heads down. I don't want to give the 
a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 